I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm here today with Virginia Soul Smith, who is the author of the book, The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, which is her first book. She is a co-host of the Comfort Food Podcast and is a contributing editor at Parents Magazine. Her work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, Self, Real Simple, Newsweek, Harper's, and Elle. She currently lives with her husband and two daughters in the Hudson Valley. So welcome, Virginia. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. We've been chatting before recording, and I kept being like, save that for the podcast. (laughs) So now we can finally talk, because she had such good stuff to say. I hope I remember it all now. (laughs) (laughs) So the first sentence of your book is, September 17th, 2013. It is the day before my daughter Violet's one-month birthday. It is also the first day that she will almost die. You go on from there to narrate this horrifying traumatic experience that you went through with your daughter, Violet, the beginning of her life, the after effects. Can you briefly tell listeners what happened to her? Sure. So, you know, during my pregnancy with Violet, I, you know, like every first time mom thought I was doing everything perfectly, was trying really hard to eat all the right things, do all the prenatal yoga, you know, the acupuncture. Like I really felt like building a perfect baby was like all on me and my choices. And then When she was born, you know, the delivery was normal and she seemed really healthy at birth. And so they sent us home saying, you know, go to it. Like, here's your newborn. And in the first few weeks of her life, I was breastfeeding and it was really hard and exhausting. But again, I was thinking, you know, this is what it is. Like this, you know, like I am feeding her with my body. We are doing the thing. And then the breastfeeding sessions started to get shorter and shorter. So we went from like those 45-minute per side kind of sessions to 20 minutes to 12 minutes to 6 minutes. And to be honest with you, I just thought like, oh, thank God, it's getting easier. Okay, I can take a shower. You know, this is, this is good. I have an easy baby. But that's not what was happening. What was actually happening was Violet was born with a rare set of congenital heart defects. And in the first month of her life, she was going into heart failure. And so when the feeding sessions were getting shorter, it wasn't because she was eating enough quickly. It was because she was really, she was in heart failure. She was struggling to breathe and she was starving. And nobody around me could tell, you know, that we saw, we were at the pediatrician's office for the two-week checkup. Things looked fine. And it was really in the next two weeks, like, you know, they give you like a two-week window. Right, yeah, yeah. That everything really fell apart. And so on that day that I talk about in the book, she plummeted really rapidly. So your blood oxygen level is supposed to be 100%. And by the time we got to the pediatrician's office that morning, she was at about 70%. By the end of the day, she was below 20%. And it all happened really, really, really fast. And was, yes, of course, hugely traumatic. But the weird thing about the whole experience, I mean, one of so many weird things, was, you know, that whole day I was thinking, well, gosh, I should be feeding her. You know, is this hospital that we're sitting in this emergency room, are they not very breastfeeding friendly? Like, what's going on here? And, of course, it was because she was, you know, nearly dying and they were trying to save her life and it wasn't it didn't make sense to stop to feed her but what I didn't know is that morning was actually the last time I would feed her because the trauma that she experienced that day necessary trauma life-saving trauma 
The result is she completely shut down. Eating had become too hard in those early weeks. She'd learned to associate it with all fear and badness. And so she stopped eating and she was dependent on a feeding tube for the better part of the next two years. Oh my gosh. And you detailed so beautifully in the book all the sort of ins and outs of the medical issues and traumas. And, you know, I, I, I said at one point, I wrote like OMG in the sideline, the, the sideline, the margins, silence. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at too many football helmets here. The margins of your book, because I just couldn't believe after you would get through one scare, then something else terrible would happen. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like it's hard enough to be a new mom with yeah. a well child. Yeah. Having to go through this, my heart was just breaking for you. I mean, I mean, really, I learned to be a mom and to be a medical mom at the same time. Those things are like really intertwined for me, which now that I have a second child who is typically developing and hasn't gone through any of that, I realize almost after the fact how strange that all is to have those things forged. But what was really, you know, what was interesting as we were navigating, you know, so the heart condition is this big, complicated thing. That we're, is there any history? Do you have any idea no, where it came from? Just no. totally random. It is a random around. genetic mutation fluke. They have no explanation for, you know, no one in our family. I had a completely healthy pregnancy, I had a healthy delivery. I mean, there were no red flags. And that's what's really scary. And what I do tell parents is there is a screening test that they should do on newborns in the hospital now that if she had had that test done, she wouldn't have passed it. So we probably would have been fast-tracked into the ICU the day she was born because the, they can't check the, it's called the pulse oximeter check uh, test. Say it, say it again slower. The pulse oximeter test. Pulse um, oximeter test. Yes. Okay. And so if you're a new expecting parent or a grandparent to be, make sure they do that test on your newborn because, you know, it wouldn't have, she still would have had the heart condition, but we wouldn't have had the scary day she almost died situation. She would have been stabilized sooner. And for whatever reason, our hospital neglected to do it, which is a sort of separate issue. But Oh, my Lord. But yeah, so, you know, this whole experience of having a medically fragile baby and learning how to parent during that time, again, what I kept coming back to as her mom was this desire to want to feed her because that's so fundamental mm -hmm. to the human existence. I mean, that's like the first thing babies do within a few hours of life. They breastfeed or they bottle feed. And, you know, this is how we bond with our infants. And we have all kinds of research on this. We know that when babies are eating and it's going well, their heart rates slow down, their rates of oxytocin and the feel-good hormones rise. Parents, when we're feeding our babies, we experience all these same benefits. It's really how we bond with our children and how we fall in love. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I didn't have that. So, you know, the heart thing was complicated and hard to navigate in its own journey. But not being able to feed my baby was the true heartbreak for me day in, day out in that year. Because, you know, I had to figure out all different ways to bond with her, which I did. We're extremely close. She's five years old now and really healthy. But it really brought home to me how fundamental and crucial eating is to our happiness as humans and how when it goes wrong, like nothing else works. I mean, when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. When I, I had twins first, who are almost 12 now, and my daughter had a, an allergy to my milk. So I had to stop nursing her before my son. Yeah. So for a month, I was still nursing him. And then I would have someone else like feed her mm -hmm. at the same time, like my, my mother, or my husband, sure. baby nurse or whatever. And after a couple of weeks, like she wouldn't go to me anymore because yeah. I was only breastfeeding my other son. So then I decided I would just scrap the whole thing. Right. But anyway, it is like some totally. sort of like 
you know, this is what I'm here for. Am I still her mom? Right, like, right. <laughs> like, you and know. huge feelings of failure and like, you know, and, and a lot of that, what we have to recognize is like, yeah, I mean, biologically, our bodies are made to do this thing, but there's also all this cultural conditioning around it, these expectations we put on ourselves. And that's what I was really wrestling with during that first pregnancy when I thought I could do it all perfectly. Like, that's not, that's not biology. That's culture telling me I have to be a certain kind of mom. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of messages we get about the kind of mom we need to be with food and our kids. And it starts with breastfeeding and then it goes right on to what are you packing in the lunch boxes? And, totally. you know, how many vegetables are they eating? Do they love kale smoothies? Probably not. You know, this whole not thing. My kids. <laughs> not, my not many kids. <laughs> and so, you know, that was really what led me to write the book was, you know, I had this strange, surreal experience where I was pushed so far outside the normal paradigm of how we relate to food. And we had to kind of tiptoe our way back in, figure out how to get back there with her. And I realized, like, I don't want all that back. I don't want those negative cultural messages. I don't want to be holding myself to unrealistic standards. And the more I talk to other moms and other women, I realize, like, a lot of people are struggling with that in different ways. A lot of people are struggling to feel safe around food for themselves or with their children. And that's a conversation we really need to be having. That's true. That's so true. How did you deal yourself, not just the medical, not dealing with the medical crisis aspect of the whole situation, but you, it's hard enough for moms to, you know, have self-care and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. But how did you literally like deal with yourself? How did you take care of yourself? How did you... Like, how did you get through it? Did, did I take cry? care of myself you, is like, a question. Sleeping? No, <laughs> yeah. just like, how did you get, like, how are the ways you saw it affecting you? Mm-hmm. There were a couple of things. Not to cry. Or no, 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 it's fine. I mean, I think it's important to talk about because we don't have a good roadmap for dealing with trauma and a particularly trauma with parenting, you know. A lot of me coping didn't look like super great coping. Like I remember when she was in the hospital in the beginning, people were always saying to me like, go take a walk, get some fresh air. And I wanted to punch them in the throat because I could not leave my baby. Every time I left that hospital room, I was worried she wouldn't still be there when I got back. Oh my gosh, the fear. So, you know, these suggestions to like run down to the cafeteria and get a nice salad, I was like, that's not what I need. I need you to bring me food so I can continue to sit here. No, I don't want to drink more water because if I have to drink more water, then I have to pee and I have to leave again and I don't want to leave. Oh my gosh. So, but you know, that on paper didn't look like people were worried about me, like, oh, Virginia won't leave the room, but that was what I needed to be doing. I was where I needed to be. And then as she became more stable, you know, we could branch out and find other coping. To be honest, I did a lot of online shopping that year okay, because I wasn't sleeping uh-huh. and a little 3 a.m. retail therapy helped. Nice. Um, Excellent. You know, but also, you know, I work with a therapist. I still work with a therapist. You know, that was a huge part of my support plan. I have my best friends who are all moms themselves on a group text who I could text, you know, from the hospital from any of these moments at any time and get support. And my husband and I, you know, I mean, we were figuring out how to support each other, which sometimes also looked like saying, you know what, like you need to be taking care of yourself and I need to be taking care of myself. And we're going to give each other that space to do that. But also knowing that, of course, like he was the only other person who was feeling all this the way I was feeling it. So... And so did it lead to, like, what was it like? So Violet, you said that she was throwing up, like, what, four to seven times every day, and you and your husband were just, like, trying to deal. Yeah. How did that impact? Like, talk to me about that. <laughs> so, tell me, yeah. Tell me. So initially, she was in the hospital for a month following that first day I talked about, where she had first an emergency surgery and then an open heart surgery. And then she was medically stable, but still dependent on the feeding tube. And they said, you know, you can take her home, but you have to take the feeding tube with you. And so at that point, we went home, 
but we were basically running a hospital out of our house because we were managing this feeding tube. And feeding tubes, they sound like this neat and easy solution, but they are really difficult to live with. And in Violet's case, they triggered a lot of vomiting because, you know, they kind of hold your stomach open all the time. So, you know, it's tough on a baby's anatomy. And at that point, it was a tube that threaded down her nose, down the back of her throat. So it's also, you know, the baby's like they have little hands and they're going to rip at this tube on their face all the time. So that, you know, would come out and we would have to replace it, which is a really stressful and traumatic thing to have to do to your child. Those, we still talk about those months as being, you know, kind of the darkest time of our life because, you know, everyone around us was saying, oh, you must be so glad to be out of the hospital. Isn't this so great? And we were like, we're sleeping in shifts. She's so sick. We're afraid to do anything. You know, I was, I think we were both still off work. We're really fortunate my husband's job. Everyone donated a lot of vacation time to him so he could take a lot of time off as well. So we could, you know, we could really trade it off between the two of us really well. But it definitely underscored to me how much we need better support systems for families and trauma in this country, you know, better maternity leaves and paternity leaves, better, you know, ways because we were relying heavily on our extended families to help and come in and take shifts with her, you know, when we needed to start getting back to work. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a mess really for a long time. So if I have a friend who's going through something like this, because you said how helpful your friends were, Mm -hmm. what was most helpful to you that a friend or a colleague or something did to help out while you were going through this? People did such amazing stuff. I mean, I think one of the best things to do, I think there were definitely people who I could tell wanted to be there and just didn't know how or Mm -hmm. what to do. And they freeze up and they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's what not to do. Okay. (laughs) You know, you're worried you're going to be imposing or, you know, too much. And you're actually... There are times where that can happen, but, you know, if you can do something like small but concrete, like send food or clean their house, you know, send a cleaning service to their house to take care of that. You know, we had friends who went and shoveled our driveway for us because one time we were in the hospital during snowstorms and they knew our, you know, driveway was snowed in. And so they just went over and dealt with it and we didn't have to think about that. Like helping take care of the nuts and bolts of life, just like you would for any friend with a newborn, is really, really useful. But definitely, like one of my favorite things, an old friend from high school who we really weren't even in very close touch with, but she'd followed this, you know, followed things I was posting about it. She sent us a care package in the hospital that was breakfast because breakfast food in hospitals is particularly terrible. So she made like these really amazing muffins and sent like some shelf-stable milk and homemade granola. And that was like so lovely to have like a delicious, nourishing breakfast versus like the sad Egg McMuffin I could get in the hospital cafeteria. That was a really wonderful one. And then another thing a really good friend did, a coworker of mine, she knew that, so especially in that first year when I was still pumping because we were trying to stop some breast milk. So I was spending all this time either like you know, dealing with the feeding pump, breaking down at 3 a.m. or being awake and trying to pump breast milk myself at 3 a.m. And I had talked about, you know, being awake too much and having all this sort of annoying time to fill. So she just sent me like a $100 iTunes gift certificate so I could get whatever like binge watching shows I wanted. And then later she was like, here are all my passwords to all of my streaming networks. (laughs) Just log on anytime you want because we were in the hospital. We didn't have like HBO, you know? And so we could just like have some mindless because you really need like some good mindless entertainment. So if you can send like some, you know, like not very challenging novel that they might enjoy reading, Mm -hmm. you know, crossword puzzles were really big. People sent those. You know, if someone's, like, really sitting vigil in a hospital, they need some touches of, like, comfort and home, 
And also, you know, just to feel cared for, but that won't be intrusive. Like you'll be taking care of a basic need. Extension cords are also a great thing to send to someone in the hospital because there are never enough outlets to charge your cell phones in a hospital room. So those are some little things that are hard to, you know, if you haven't been through it, you wouldn't think of, but they can make a big difference. And they're like so small, but so helpful. You know, I'm going to like send a friend an extension cord and they're going to be like, what? <laughs> they won't though. They'll be like, oh, okay. thank gosh. No, no, because when all of the, all of our, because especially like on the weekends when like a family would come visit and everyone would be like, can I charge my phone? And I'm like, what am I, your best buy? Like, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> we have one outlet in this room that's not dedicated to medical equipment. <laughs> We're doing the best we can here. Yeah, no, extension cord is really helpful. Hand lotion too, because you're using hand sanitizer sanitizer constantly and your hands get really dried out. So, yeah. Excellent. Did you ever write an article about this? I think I might have done a blog post. I can try to find it. I think you should write an article about it. Oh, I did write for Parents Magazine. We did a feature. I'm a contributing editor at Parents. And we did a feature on how to survive a hospital stay with your kids. And we did talk about this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Then you're doing all you need to do. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You don't have an assignment for me today. So you have this whole section of the book about your own journey, Mm -hmm. which I found just like, I could not like tear away from the page and, you know, as any person, but particularly as a mom. And then you paired that with a lot of research and you must have spent so long. You used to have so many interviews and research studies. I mean, how long, first of all, how long did that all take you? Like, how did you go about doing all of that work? It seems like must have been a while. Well, the thing about this book that's interesting is I think I was writing it for a long time before I was writing it and before mm-hmm. I knew I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Because, so, you know, to backtrack a little bit, even before Violet, I was a journalist and I was writing mostly for women's magazines. And so I was writing a lot about how women relate to food. And then later starting to write about parenting and how we relate to food and kids. But especially when I was writing for the women's magazines, and this was back in like the early 2000s, I was writing a lot of diet stories mm-hmm. and, you know, how to get your bikini body and all of that. And I was sort of hating it and hating myself a little bit because I didn't love this message of we should always be making our bodies smaller. I didn't think that was particularly helpful. I could also see it wasn't working, you know? (laughs) I mean, like people were always telling me like, yeah, I tried that diet and I lasted two weeks. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't work, you know? Mm -hmm. And the research is very clear on that. The dieting doesn't work long-term. So I was searching, you know, so I was always like interviewing these researcher, like obesity researchers or nutritionists. And, you know, I was kind of searching for a long time for like, well, okay, I just need to find the right plan. There's got to be one diet out there that makes you thin, but, you know, isn't miserable. You can still eat carbs. Like it'll be this like lovely, sane way to eat and all the pieces will fall into place. Like now I know that unicorn absolutely does not exist, but I was really searching for it. So I was accumulating a lot of research on things like detoxing and, you know, just clean eating, like all the different sort of food trends as they came along and becoming increasingly critical of it. And then, like I said, it really was this experience with Violet where I had thought I was doing everything by the book. I thought I was following the rules Mm -hmm. about how to eat during pregnancy to ensure I had a healthy baby. And then that didn't happen. And that's when I realized there aren't any rules. Mm -hmm. There isn't a plan here. There's nobody who can tell you the perfect way to eat to ensure perfect health for your children, to ensure you stay the perfect size genes. You always want to be like, this is not how it works. And in fact, what I'd seen with Violet was, you know, in the first few weeks of her life, eating did work. Like she was born with all this knowledge about how to eat. She had all these instincts. But then it was this outside trauma. It was this outside thing that derailed all of that. And so that's sort of where her story really becomes a metaphor for the whole book, because that's what's happening to so many of us with food is, you know, we have, we are searching for this plan. We're trying to follow this external set of rules, 
but we can't sync them up with what our bodies are really telling us they need. And that disconnect is what's so hard to navigate. So yeah, so when I started thinking about it more broadly as a book, I was able to go back to a lot of reporting I'd done in the past, but kind of look through it, look at it with a more critical lens. You know, I had this knowledge base to fall back on in a way. And you had written that other article, When Your Baby Won't Eat? Yeah, so that was that was kind of the kicking off point for the book. So I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine in 2016, telling Violet's story and talking about, you know, our journey to help her trust food again. And it was the response to that article that made me realize there was a bigger book because I had all these people emailing me. And of course, I heard from other feeding tube families. But then I also heard from people saying, you know, like, yeah, this sounds familiar. Like, I don't trust food. I don't mm-hmm. feel safe around food. And there were all these parallels with how people respond to diet culture Mm. that made me want to really explore that deeper. And so then I just started collecting, you know, pretty much anyone I met, asking them about their relationship with food, you know, to the degree that didn't freak them out, you know, but also thinking about these different themes of, you know, these different problems people were telling me about or things I was interested in and just following threads of different, you know, different ways of having a problem with eating. And I, there were some I knew. I knew I wanted a chapter on learning to eat again after bariatric surgery. Yep. I knew I wanted to talk more about picky eating in kids because that's such a dominant thing that parents are dealing with. But then other things surprised me. You know, the chapter on avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. I didn't know very much about that condition, but it suddenly seemed like it was such an, a big piece of this. So yeah, the research, let's see. I wrote the Times piece in 2016. I really spent most of 2017, it was about a year. I can actually date it pretty exactly because I got pregnant with my second daughter right as I was diving into book research, which was a questionable planning choice. <laughs> and I filed the manuscript two weeks before she was born. I was like right on the line of like, okay, nice. who's going to come first, book or baby? Um, and so that was, yeah, doing a lot of research, traveling to meet with people, sit in kitchens, just, you know, learn about food, but also talking to researchers as well. So it was a mix. That's amazing. In the introduction, you actually had talked about what you were saying just now about the eating trends and the diets, and you also talk about your own struggle with eating. And at the end, you said, but I am not always at peace with my body. After all, I've never met anyone who really is. Mm -hmm. So after talking to all these different people, do you still feel that way? Do you still feel like nobody has sort of found the happy balance of living? I don't know. I don't. I think I'm actually a lot more at peace with my body since even writing, since I wrote that chapter and since writing the book. I think this process taught me a lot. And actually, the process of talking about the book with people since then, like talking to different audiences about the book and seeing what resonates with people has taught me a lot more. No, am I every single day of the year waking up, putting on my jeans and thinking like, gosh, this is just great. I'm exactly where I want to be body-wise. You can't, you know, there's so many messages heaped on us all the time. But doing this research really helped me start to identify them in different ways. You know, I can really spot diet culture in its tracks now, whereas before, and what I think is very common for a lot of women, is you have this kind of belief about yourself and food. I can't control myself around brownies or, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't eat dairy, you know, whatever it is. Like we have these sort of stories that we've really bought into about ourselves and food. Sometimes there's a medical basis. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying everyone in the world can eat dairy, but, you know, but often it's more of a because it'll make me fat is the end of that sentence. And we don't always reckon with those limiting beliefs. And the process of researching the book, you know, I really did have to take every one of mine on pretty head on and tackle it. And so that really helped me let go of a lot of them. And I'm much more comfortable with the fact that, you know, my adult body is not the skinny body I had as a child that I sort of thought I was going to grow up to be. I'm comfortable with the fact that I look like I've had two kids because I'm pretty proud of that, you know, 
all of that is stuff that I feel really good about now, which, yeah, I mean, when I first became a mom, I was still really struggling with all of that, for sure. I could talk for like the next 10 10 hours straight about my history of dieting and food and all of my stuff. But I'll tell you the one thing, surprisingly, in the last couple months that has made me like be like, okay, like giving up the fight, the the Mm -hmm. struggle. Like Mm -hmm. I I took this DNA, like 23andMe test. Oh, interesting. And you can go through and at the end it says like, for other people with your ancestry and DNA and whatever, this is the average weight that they are. Oh, that's fascinating. And it was exactly my weight now. And you're like, not the weight I necessarily want to be. Right, but you're the weight that my body seems to want to be at. Yes, (laughs) yes. So I'm like, you know what? F it. I'm just here. I am. You're here. You're I'm, where? I don't know. Everybody else, like, anyway, so that, no, for I think that's reason, fascinating because, like, you know, the research shows over and over how much weight is controlled by genetics. And that's mm-hmm. something that we aren't very comfortable with that knowledge because it means that we should give up the dieting fight and that, you know, this whole, like, it's about willpower myth. Like, we've right. been sold. Like, it's not, you know, yeah. there's, you, you, sure, there's like a, we have a range that we can all move around in to right. some extent, but it's narrower than a lot of us like to think. And yeah, the the weight that you're kind of genetically determined yeah. to be at may not be what diet culture tells you, but it's like the right place for your body. Right. And that's so Although, liberating. you know, I eat dessert every single day. I mean, fail. so this is the that way. means you're at the right <laughs> weight because you can eat dessert every single day and yeah. you're at this, this is the weight you can be at and live a happy life. <laughs> I feel like when I was younger and I was like always trying to be like, you know, thinner than I ever would have ever gotten to be. Anyway, I would always be like, why can't I be one of these people who eats everything they want and not gain weight? And now I've realized... I can. It's just I have to be this way. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's so important, though. It's so interesting because, I mean, yeah, there we can all be that person. You just have to be comfortable with yeah. the weight as that long it's as going to put not, you out. I mean, I eat very healthy most of the time, yeah. aside from my sweets. I mean, I feel like as long as you're eating well for your body, protein and yeah. vegetables, and you're, you know, you're not at risk for all these diseases and whatever. Right. But like that's, not, you know, that's, yes. but within the, like, obsessive... Yes, but that's the problem is, you know, for most of us, what that, quote, ideal weight we have in our head, it has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with disease risk. It's a completely, you know, like manufactured thing that that's what we need to let go of. And it's also a lot of like stress that I don't have time for. Right. I I just like took a side and like threw it, you know, out the window because I was like, if I don't spend my days in the closet, if I don't spend like every time I get dressed thinking like, when am I going to get back into those jeans? Right. Just get rid of those jeans. Yeah. Yeah. I just got rid of them all. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. And now I have like two pairs of jeans, but they both fit. (laughs) (laughs) And I like my clothes and I don't have to think. Yeah. Yeah. And turns out I hate wearing jeans. It's a ton of mental (laughs) space you get back. It's a ton of it. I didn't mean to like, no, that's fine. Take over this podcast. I love hearing about I'm that. A, I love hearing about people's stuff with food. It's oh why my I wrote God. the book. I, swear, I was a Weight Watchers leader. Mm. I, I have so much I could say. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to just put this myself on pause. <laughs> so one other thing you mentioned in the book that research on eating disorder patients suggests that high, and this is related to parenting your kids to make sure they end up with healthy eating habits. It suggests that highly pressurized meal times early in life might play a role in the development of these conditions. So I was like, I feel like I overcompensate by not making my mealtime mm-hmm. so stressful, but then my son like wanders around and eats goldfish instead. So that's not right, <laughs> literally. We're in um, that journey with my 18-month-old right now, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to know like, how much pressure do you think or did you find in your research is too much pressure, but how much is necessary to like make sure they eat enough that they're going to actually sleep that night and that they're right. getting proteins and vegetables and that they're not going to be like constipated and all the other stuff you have to watch out for? Like, 
Where's the line? Does it say? Where's so, the manual? So there is something of a manual that I found. I mean, there's not really a manual, of course, with all things parenting. But I think what it is, is we're putting pressure on the wrong things. Parents feel like we need to be in charge of what our kids eat down to like three bites of broccoli before you can have your cookie or, you know, like you've had too much pasta. Now you need to eat this. Like we feel like we need to micromanage their plates. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always come across as the type of like truly onerous pressure that I would worry would necessarily like put that kid you know, again, I should also note, you know, with eating disorders, there's a strong genetic component as well. So it's not to say every high-pressure meal situation is going to put a kid on track to an eating disorder. But if you have vulnerabilities to that, these things do play a role. You know, people who have eating disorders can often sort of date them back to a particularly traumatic food experience. So it's, you know, it's worth thinking about. And, you know, the thing is, is even if it's the more benign pressure, even if it's just comments at a birthday party of, oh my God, you guys have had so much sugar, you're going to be crazy tonight. Or, you know, you, you keep coming back, you're eating all the brownies, you're not leaving any for your friends. Like those kinds of comments really undermine a kid's confidence in their own body. Mm. And so what we need to be doing instead of trying to sort of police them bite by bite or food group by food group, what I'm trying to teach my kids and what the research is showing me is a useful sort of tool to try to teach our kids is to listen to their bodies. And when I say teach them, I actually mean just like get out of their way because they're born knowing to do that. Kids are born knowing when they're hungry, they know when they're full, and they know that food is supposed to be comforting. Like those are the three core eating instincts we all have. And then those get disrupted over time by, you know, in Violet's case, a really intense traumatic experience. But, you know, for all of us, slowly social messaging, culture, diet culture, all this stuff kind of chips away at it. Some of that's normal. I mean, you can't have, you know, the way a newborn eats like 75 times a day is not how a three-year-old can eat. We have to socialize them to a mealtime schedule, to learning to eat at the table, not wander around with the goldfish, which again, I hear you is like (laughs) something we're working out at my house right now. You know, we have to over time teach them sort of etiquette and and schedule and like general mealtime practices. Mm But we don't have to teach them how to feel hunger, and we don't have to teach them how to feel fullness because they know that. And anytime we talk to them about that, we're actually making it harder for them to hear their own bodies. And so that's where parents can back off. We don't have to be in charge of our child's hunger, and we also don't have to be in charge of our child's weight. And that, I think, is an even harder one to let go of. Parents feel like, oh my gosh, my child is in a bigger body, or if they're really underweight, like it's all my fault, I've screwed something up. When kids grow in like all different ways, kids, you know, growth charts are really really complicated. It's normal for kids to go through a stockier phase right before puberty, and then they lean out. And there's all these things that happen with kids' growth that are beyond our control. And that you sitting there and counting out bites of food or otherwise sort of really having a a really involved relationship with their plate in that way, you're not actually impacting any of that. You're just stressing out your kid with food and making it harder for them to trust themselves. So that's the kind of pressure. And again, it can be very well-intentioned. It's almost always really well-intentioned. We love our kids. We want them to be healthy, you know, but we're just, we're, we're going after the wrong things. And so some things I'd, I've learned to do instead, you know, when my daughter has one of those meals where she's like basically eating carpet lint and a couple of blueberries and you're like, what? I say to her, you know, does your tummy feel full till breakfast? Because it's dinner time now and there's not going to be any more food till breakfast. And sometimes she'll say, yep, I'm good. And it's like, I don't understand that, but okay. And other times she'll say, oh, my tummy needs three more bites. And she'll come back and eat a little more. And if then an hour after dinner, when we're getting ready for bed, then she does the 
like, but I'm so hungry. Mm-hmm. I always have the same response, which is you can have a banana or you can be hungry for breakfast. So then you can really suss out, like if she's really hungry, she'll eat the banana, right? Like that'll fill her up and tide her over. To, and you, it doesn't have to be a banana. I just pick that because it's a food that my kids like, but don't get like they're not going to like sabotage banana dinner. Sales spike right. in New York City after. <laughs> I I just use a banana because it's sort of like a you know it's like kids like it but they don't go crazy for it right, so yeah. you know they're not going to like skip dinner to get the banana like nobody's ever coveted that that dramatically but you know any kind of food that's like feels filling to you and will like take the guilt off mm-hmm. of oh god they went to bed without dinner if they're hungry they'll eat it if they're not hungry they'll start whining and saying no I want something else and then you know it's just more mm-hmm. about wanting your attention wanting another bedtime story like it's not really hunger you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can say to them, like, this isn't really hunger, and we need to talk about hunger really clearly because it's really important to be clear on when our body is hungry. And so then you can just let them go to bed not having eaten that much, and they'll be fine. They'll eat a bigger breakfast tomorrow. They'll make up for it. On the flip side, if you have a kid who fixates on foods, let's talk about the kid who's maybe they're in a bigger body, maybe they're not, but they're just, you know, one of those kids who's, like, never left the table without clearing their plate and eats bigger mm-hmm. Similarly there, you have to say, like, I'm trusting you to listen to your hunger. If you're really hungry for more, of course you can have more. And you can talk about portions in like, well, this is the cake we're all sharing for someone's birthday. Let's make sure everyone has a piece before we go back for seconds. That's manners. Mm -hmm. That's not like portion control. Right. But, you know, it's just like that's a polite way to talk about it. But you don't comment when they eat way more than you feel like they should be hungry for because you don't know. You're not in their growth spurt. You're not in their brain. So you can kind of step back and just trust them to— Trust them to know the how much and even the whether or not to eat a food. And you're in charge of what foods you offer. Wow. That was so helpful. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That was like, I'm glad. Oh, my gosh. I didn't invent that method. I should no, give I know. credit. No, I know. I don't There's to- rooted in a philosophy called the Division of Responsibility and Feeding, which was created by a feeding therapist named Ellen Satter. And I always make sure to mention that because she's sort of the— you know, she's come up with that, what you're in charge of, what the kids are in charge of, which I find super, super helpful. And she has lots of good books that I recommend people check out. But I mean, I have, I've looked at it in my own family's life and then in, you know, reporting on this with other families. And now it's working. It's working beautifully. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, my kids are five and a half and 18 months. And, you know, my five-year-old is Violet, who's gone through this whole journey. And she still is a more cautious eater. She probably always will be. My younger is a more ravenous, eats everything kid. And people will say, like, oh, are they good eaters? That's the question you always get asked, which I hate that question because Mm -hmm. right there we're putting judgment in it. We're putting some sort of value on this kid if they're a good eater. What I always say is they're really good at listening to their bodies. It looks different meal to meal, and it looks different kid to kid, but they're listening to their bodies, and that's very cool. Do you have any? Well, first of all, wait. I want to mention quickly your podcast. That, yes. Yeah. Tell so me a more, more of about all your of this feeding stuff, especially yeah, if you're a parent, a mom in particular. So I co-host a podcast called the Comfort Food Podcast. I host it with my best friend Amy Palangian, who is the creator of the very popular food blog Yummy Toddler Food. So she really focuses on because toddlers are kind of when food goes off the rails for a lot of kids. Like if they get through babyhood, a lot of babies eat everything when they mm. first start solids. Not all babies, but you know, there's a common trajectory where babies kind of eat everything and then they hit 18 months and they suddenly start rejecting food all over the map and parents freak out and they Mm -hmm. don't understand where all this pickiness came from. And it's actually developmentally totally appropriate for toddlers to go through that phase. And it lasts till they're like seven. So it's a long journey you're on where they're just naturally more cautious because they're developing more independence and, you know, more opinions and it's just part of their whole thing. But how you handle that can really 
determine whether you end up with like a longtime picky eater or a kid who's like kind of eases back out of it. So she's a great resource for all of that. And the podcast, you know, we kind of, Amy brings more of the practical, like what to do about dinner tonight tips. And then I do more of this diet culture analysis and really looking at how diet culture is impacting how we feed our kids. And so it's a mix of, we call it the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and ourselves because we, you know, kind of look at it from all sides. So it's a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, I'm totally going to start listening to this podcast. I don't know how I didn't know about it, but <laughs> I'm, now I'm, I'm in. Yay. Um, any advice to aspiring writers having just published this fantastic book? Sure. I think writing as much as you can and reading as much as you can are really, you know, the cores of how to learn to be a writer. I think, you know, the reading piece of it sometimes gets forgotten. People, I see a lot of people blogging and, you know, putting a lot of content out there and that's great, but I think you really learn to be a good writer by reading a ton. So both books like what you hope to be writing, but also I actually read a ton of fiction. Mm -hmm. I read more fiction than I read nonfiction. I definitely read lots of nonfiction and, you know, when I'm researching a book, I read a lot of nonfiction related to that. But at my core, I'm a fiction reader, and I think that's where you learn storytelling. And I think that's why, you know, as a writer, even though I'm a nonfiction writer, you know, I'm drawn to people's stories. In this case, they're stories with food. And that's, you know, what I think grounds us. Like, it's easier. It's it's hard to talk about any complex social issue like food and diet culture in the sort of broad sense. But when we make it about, you know, this individual person, and that's, you know, Gina in the book who had weight loss surgery in order to have a child, you know, someone else in the book who only eats like six foods and went to prison and had to figure out how to stay on, you know, how to manage that food fear during prison. Like those are, that's how you really connect. So for me, reading tons of fiction has made me a much better writer. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank like you. This was like a little, you know, parenting counseling for me today. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Oh, uh, I loved it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Today's episode was sponsored by Cereal Box, S-C-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, CerealBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.